Well, what do you think of when you hear the word freedom? Uh, I'm going to tell you what I think of, and that will possibly tell you something about me, but that's okay. When I th think of the word freedom, I think Mel Gibson with his face painted blue. Anybody? Anybody? Yes, thank you. Good. Um, wearing a kilt, riding up and down on his horse, giving a stirring speech to the Scottish army as they stare down the English in their 13th century war of independence. It's the film Braveheart, 1995. Uh, William, uh, Mel Gibson plays William Wallace, who is the leader of the, the Scottish rebellion against the English. And preparing them for battle, they're all terrified, they don't want to do it, they want to go home. But preparing them for battle against the English who are just over there on the other side of the battlefield, he yells at them, and I won't yell at them because that would do something terrible to the live stream. They may take, and I won't do the accent either because that would be terrible. They may take our lives, but they will never take our freedom. And you can guess what happens. They rush into battle with the English, defeat them, and that eventually leads us to England and Scotland as we have it today. So freedom, the, the desire for freedom, the, the quest for freedom, the, the exercise of freedom, it can do, uh, it can drive people to do extreme things. It can ignite passion, perhaps division. Uh, for some, it can, it can cut to the heart of culture or what it means to be them. Today, in Galatians 5, Paul writes to the Galatians and to us about freedom. But when we're thinking about the concept of freedom, there are, there are three basic questions we need to answer. And I think in this section of Galatians, Paul answers those questions for us. The three questions are these. Freedom from what? Freedom through what? And freedom to do what? Okay? Freedom from what? What are we being freed from? If we are campaigning or, or fighting for our freedom, presumably there is something that means we are not free now. What, what is that thing? Freedom through what? what? What is the means by which the freedom is, is achieved? And freedom to do what? Once the freedom is gained, what are we going to do? I'm free. What am I going to do? So that's where we're going. Freedom from what, through what, and to do what? So Galatians 5, verse 1, begins with this great statement, a headline, if you like. Have a look at verse 1 with me. It says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, if you are from a particular age bracket, which not many of you are, you're humming a song in your head right now, aren't you? Yeah, some of you are. We were going to sing it tonight, but the musicians didn't know it. Um, uh, Andrew and I offered to do a karaoke version. <laughs> that was turned down. I thought that was very... Anyway. Um, so, 
There's the headline. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. If we are thinking about this headline and we're thinking about our first question, freedom from what, what does the headline tell us? What is the thing that the freedom is from? So William Wallace, a.k.a. Mel Gibson, and his Scottish rebels were fighting for freedom from the oppressive King Edward, which they eventually won. Here, Galatians 5 verse 1, the freedom is from what? End of the verse, a yoke of slavery. Now that is a very powerful image. The yoke is the the heavy piece of wood that that goes around the neck of the animal, maybe an oxen or a buffalo, something like that, to to connect the animal to the the plough or or to the wagon. It's an image of restriction, of of heaviness, of, of burden. The animal wearing this yoke is not free to graze, is not free to go this way or that way. No, no, it is locked in to its burden. And yet the yoke in verse 1 here is not a plough or a wagon, it's slavery. Paul is saying, in our freedom, we are not to submit again to this yoke of slavery. Now, of course, when Paul is writing to the Galatians, uh, they know all about slavery. It's a very common concept at that time. Um, where you know, we think of the, the slaves building the, the, the great buildings and the monuments of the ancient world and working in the fields of Pharaoh and, and all that. But slaves were, they were working in offices as well. They were, they were lawyers, they were accountants. They were there because they had been conquered or they'd been declared bankrupt or they'd just been born into slavery. They were just part of society. But the slavery Paul is talking about here in Galatians is not the slavery of working in a quarry and being whipped by a cruel master because you're not cutting out enough bricks or whatever it is, or you've been declared bankrupt. No, no. In the following verses, we see that this slavery is something very different. We're going to have a look at verses 2 to 5 again. I'm going to read them, but I want you to think, as, as I read them, I want you to look out for What is the slavery that Paul is talking about? Let me read from verse 2. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. What is the yoke of slavery? It's law-keeping, isn't it? It's not um, driving to the speed limit, paying your taxes kind of law-keeping, but religious law-keeping, the type of religious law-keeping, maybe pharisaical law-keeping, that aims to justify. The type of law-keeping that says, I am a member of the people of God because 
I obey the Ten Commandments and all the laws of the Old Testament. It's the law-keeping of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus in Mark chapter 10, who when Jesus says to him, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honour your father and mother. He replies, teacher, all of these I've kept from my youth. In a way that is saying, therefore I am okay with God. It's the law keeping that says obeying God's law is the way you are made right with God. And actually, therefore, it's so important, we're going to invent a whole lot more laws and traditions to make sure that you don't break God's law, which is exactly what the Pharisees did. They invented, they had God's law, the Old Testament, but they invented all this other stuff to go around the outside of that to make sure that you didn't break the law. You know what my favourite one is? On the Sabbath, you're not allowed to use a mirror. Why? Because if you use a mirror on the Sabbath, you might see a grey hair. I know this is going to be more of a problem for some than others, but there you go. Um, and if you see a grey hair, you might be tempted to pluck it out. And that would be work. And in doing work on the Sabbath, you have broken the law. See, because there is such a focus on keeping the law, because it is through obedience of the law by which you are made right with God, there is this whole infrastructure of tradition that is developed. There are, of course, modern equivalents. So where I lived in Mexico for 12 years, uh, Quaresma or, or Lent was a really, really big deal. Uh, people took it extremely seriously and and actively gave up stuff for the 40 days before Easter. Uh, supermarkets would run massive promotions based on quaresma, uh, you know, marketing seafood and other quaresma-safe food items. The whole thing was about obeying a tradition, which was seen as a law, because through that you would win favour with God. Uh, to, to break the law... To, to eat the red meat, to use Instagram, whatever it was that you kind of vowed to abstain from, that was going to mess up your standing with God because you weren't keeping his law. Paul says that kind of religious law keeping, whether it be actual law or tradition, obeyed as it is for the sake of gaining God's favour is a yoke of slavery. It may appear very pious. It may appear extremely religious. It may actually get you kudos from society who look at you and go, oh, you're a very religious person, that's very good. But it is a yoke of slavery. That's what Paul's saying here. It aims to give you surety and confidence and in some regard, joy. But it doesn't. It is slavery. But why? Why is he 
speaking so harshly here. I mean, yoke of slavery, that is a very strong term. It's, it's, a, very, it's a very strong language for something that God himself has instituted. I think we see the problem when we look at verses 2, 3, and 4, when Paul kind of zeroes in on the issue of circumcision, which I think he is using as a general representation of law-keeping. As he speaks about circumcision, which is a sign instituted by God, he identifies two problems. The first is in verse 3. If you want to be a lawkeeper, that is someone who is going to win divine favour through obedience to the law, you need to go the whole way and keep the entire law. It is no good saying... I've kept eight out of the Ten Commandments, that's a pass, right? No. If you are relying on law-keeping to be acceptable to God, it is an all-or-nothing game. You are either a law-keeper or you are not. There's no grey area. It's all in or not at all. I wonder if you've ever had a conversation or you've thought that if, you, know, you think, I'll be okay with God. I've done pretty well. I've tried to keep the law when I can. That should be good enough. It really doesn't work. Imagine if soccer players and referees took that attitude. I'm I'm looking forward to the, the World Cup later this year in Qatar. And in the final, a couple of minutes to go, it's nil nil. Germany's playing Brazil. And with two minutes to go, the German striker scores a goal to win the World Cup for Germany. Sure, he was offside, but that's okay, because he's been onside most of the game, so we'll just let that one stand. That is an absurd situation, isn't it? I can't, you know, you can imagine that if something like that happened, if you are counting on law keeping, it's got to be all or nothing. Because if it's not, there's going to be accusations of bias and injustice and unfairness, and rightly so. So that's the first problem. If you want to rely on keeping the law, you've got to keep the whole law. But the second problem is, if you are aiming to keep the law, you are, verse 4, severed from Christ. Again, very harsh language. It isn't you know, the relationship's a bit awkward or there's a bit of a strain or there's a bit of tension or ambiguity. No, no, no. You are severed from Christ. Very harsh language, like kind of like yoke of slavery, really. We're going to think about that more in a moment, but I think we've answered our first question in relation to freedom. Freedom from what? Freedom by the, from the slavery of law keeping. The second question is freedom through what? In other words, how is the freedom achieved? You know, as William Wallace galloped up and down in front of his Scottish countrymen, the way in which their freedom was going to be achieved was to uh, defeat those stinking Englishmen over there on the other side of the field. Defeat them and you will be free. Lose, and you'll be enslaved and taxed as you are now. That's what he was saying. 
in Galatians 5, the freedom is from slavery and sin, as a slavery to sin, but how is that freedom achieved? Well, as we've just seen, it's something to do with Jesus, isn't it? Because in verses 4 to 6, two alternatives are presented for freedom. We've seen that one is law-keeping, although there are obvious problems with that. I'm going to read verses 4 to 6 again. See if you can see what is the other possibility. Being justified by law-keeping is one possibility. What's the other? Verses 4 to 6. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. What's the alternative to law-keeping? It's faith in Jesus, isn't it? Instead of law-keeping or not law-keeping, faith in Jesus is the way to freedom. Instead of being severed from Christ, we receive Christ, we receive grace. Instead of relying on our own work, we trust in the work of another. That is the heart of the Christian message. It's not what we do that allows us to have a relationship with God, but what God has done for us in Jesus and our trust in that. Let me say that again. I want to be very clear. It is not what we do that allows us to have a relationship with God, but what God has done for us in Jesus and our trust in that. Now, I'm a visitor here today. Maybe you are too. Or maybe you're a visitor on, on the live stream. Uh, maybe you've just walked past and come in. Uh, if you are a visitor, or actually if you're a regular as well, and you are not clear about what Christians believe, hear this. We believe that we are right with God because of what Jesus has done. We believe in that. We trust in that. We rely on that. It is what Jesus has done that gives us freedom. As we live in him, we are set free from the slavery of the law. Now, if that is the first time you've heard that, also heard something like that, you might be kind of processing right now. And I understand that. Because what we believe as Christians is fundamentally different from just about every other aspect of our life. Because in many other areas of life, we get what we deserve. We get what we earn. Study hard as a student, you will get the good marks and you deserve them. Work hard at work, you will climb the chain and you deserve to, you've worked for it. Put those extra hours in at the gym or in the pool or on the track and you will improve your time and you'll win the event. Those extra hours you've put in will pay off. Work produces outcome. And it's very easy to apply that kind of you get what you work for thinking in a religious or a spiritual context. 
You can do all sorts of good things, whether they be obedience, keeping the law, the religious law type things, or doing religiously based good works, giving money, whatever. And the thinking is, if you are a good religious person, then you will get a good outcome, which in the spiritual context is a place in heaven, right? But what Paul is saying here is that it's different with Jesus. We are not free because of our work. We are free because we trust in his work. Look at the headline again, verse 1, chapter 5. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Who is doing what is very important in that sentence. Christ has set us free free. Why? Because we've earned it through law keeping? No. Because we've been shown grace and we benefit from what Christ has done for us. Listen to how Paul expresses this in another one of his letters. I'm going to read Philippians chapter 3 from verses 4 to 9 and I want you to listen out for the way Paul talks about his good works and his, his religious pedigree and what those things are good for. From Philippians chapter 3, verse 4. Paul says, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever I had... I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul's freedom is because of Christ. He trusts in that, not in his pedigree or his obedience or his law-keeping. So, question two of our examination of freedom has been answered. Freedom through what? Freedom through Jesus. Which brings us to our third question. Freedom to do what? Again, let's go back to William Wallace. If Scotland was able to win this battle and throw off the yoke of the English, what would they be able to do? What was the aim? It was to govern themselves. Write and enact their own laws rather than be dictated to by England. Taxes would be spent locally rather than being used to fund the development of London and expenditure that was leaving Scotland behind. Scottish clan loyalty would be recognised and appreciated rather than despised and destroyed. Freedom would mean self-rule and self-identity and being able to speak in a very weird accent and not be made fun for it. Have a look at me, have a look with me from verse 13. See if you can see the point of the freedom that comes through Christ. From verse 13, for you are called to freedom, brothers. 
Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. There are two possibilities for the way we use our freedom. One is to say, I am free to do whatever I want. No longer am I under the law. No longer is my relationship with God determined by whether I'm good or not, whether I keep his law or not. I've got a free pass. I will do whatever I like. And so I will. I'm not accountable to anyone, judged by no one, not, account- not answerable to anyone. I am free. I will do what I want. I have a warning for you. I'm about to use a cricket analogy. If you don't like cricket, just have a micro sleep because it's not worth, you know. But if you know about cricket, stay with me. So in Australia, we love cricket, right? Uh, And in cricket, the bowler has to observe certain restrictions when he's bowling the ball towards the batsman. And one of those restrictions is that part of his front foot has to be, or I won't do it there because I'll kick something, Uh, part of his front foot has to be behind the line that's painted on the ground. If the bowler fails to do that, so if he oversteps the line, that is called a a no ball. And the umpire goes, no ball. It's it's good. Um, In some forms of cricket, if the umpire calls a no ball, the next ball that is bowled the batsman cannot get out on it. So the batsman gets this thing called a free hit. He can just try and whack the ball as hard as he can without fear of any consequence because he cannot, he cannot get out. Score as many light runs as you, try, you can off this one ball and so the, the batsman will just do the craziest things which he wouldn't normally do because it's too risky but there is no risk, there's no worries, just go for it. If we are free in Christ, okay, if you're sleeping, come back. If we are free in Christ, one way of using our freedom is to treat it as like a free hit. I'm free through my trust in Jesus, so it really doesn't matter what I'm going to do, so I'll just do anything, whether it's good, bad, neutral, whatever. Doesn't doesn't change my status with God because my status with God is not determined by my actions. So one way of using your freedom is to do whatever you want. But that isn't what freedom in Christ is about. Paul says in Galatians 5, because we are free in Christ, we are free to serve one another in love. We're to use our freedom not for selfishness or self-indulgence, but for service. That is a profound difference. Not selfishness or self-indulgence, but for service. Let me illustrate that, uh, what that means by thinking about coming to church. As Christians, as people who trust in Christ, our status with Christ, our status with God, is not determined by whether we come to church on Sunday or not. There is no 
I went to church on Sunday, therefore I'm good with God, or I didn't go to church on Sunday, therefore God is frowning at me, kind of box ticking going on. No. To say that church attendance is a religious law to be kept and therefore determines your status with God would not be an accurate understanding of the scriptures. Is it good to go to church? Yes. Are we exhorted in the scriptures to keep meeting together as believers? Yes. Are we exhorted to not stop that habit of meeting with one another? Yes. Are we determined to be Christians or not based on whether we went to church on Sunday? No. We are free from the law-based system of religious obedience. So, in that sense, because of the freedom we have in Christ, we are free to go to church or not. But how does being free and using that freedom in love to serve one another influence how we might think about going to church or not? And if we do decide to go, how might it change our attitude to the way we think about church when we are there? What it says is, my going to church is an opportunity to love and serve others rather than an opportunity for me to tick a box. In my freedom in Christ, I'll come to church with an attitude of serving, of looking out for people, of looking for an opportunity to help or, or welcome someone who I haven't seen before instead of just sitting in the spot where I always sit, surrounded by the other people who always sit there because that's their spot. I'll look around and see, well, who would be good to talk to? And I'll go and sit with them. I'll see a need in kids' ministry, and I'll say, I can help with that. I'll volunteer to come early to set up chairs or stay late to pack up, whatever it is. I'll take the time for the conversation after church rather than wash, uh, rushing off because that person might have something they want to share. And I'll pray for them during the conversation and during the week. Why would I do those things? Why, why this different attitude? Not to, do, not to earn divine brownie points but because I've been set free and I can use that freedom to serve one another in love. So here's the fundamental shift we need to make. We think naturally freedom, me, my freedom. Whereas I think Paul wants us to think freedom, other. How can we use our freedom to love others? We're free to serve others in love. Look again at that wonderful headline in verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. What are we free from? Slavery of law-keeping. How have we been freed? Through faith in Jesus. What are we free to do? Love others. Can I finish with a word of personal testimony, if I may? Um, this has been my personal experience and it's been the experience of others around me. That is, 
if you think about this freedom that Paul is talking about here and the freedom it gives you to serve and you take it seriously, there is going to be a whole lot more joy in your life. That's been my experience. It's the experience of a lot of people. Instead of looking at ourselves as being the source of joy or feeling like your joy comes from being positively judged by others, hello Instagram, or feeling like you are constantly comparing yourself to others to, to bring you joy, your joy is in Christ because he is the one who has set you free. And if your joy is in Christ, he is rock solid, stable, unchanging, pure, complete, rather than fickle, changing, variable, unpredictable, incomplete, as so many of our other sources of joy are. So lean on Christ, look to Christ, live in Christ, for freedom Christ has set us free. Let's pray. Father, thank you that in Jesus we are free. Thank you that because of Jesus we no longer have to rely on our own obedience of the law to be part of your family. Thank you for the confidence we can have in that. We pray that we would use our freedom to love and serve others. Help us to have the eyes we need to see how to do that. Help us to see the needs of people around us and to love them in the freedom that we have. And as we do that, please, Lord, give us a joy, a joy that has Jesus as its foundation. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.